Our Heavenly Father, we come to you now uh, asking that you speak to us through your word. Lord, may your Holy Spirit work in our hearts now as we uh, read from your Bible and look at these themes, and I pray that your Spirit would show us the truth from your word. I pray that we would know exactly how you want us to apply these truths. And then, Lord, give us the strength and courage to do the things that we should do. Our Father, we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So this week, we are doing a very wide-angle, big picture of our theme for this sermon series, uh, The Gospel in Life. Grace changes everything. And then we're going to take about, uh, talk about some very specific applications of that uh, big, wide-angle view. And uh, we're going to look at that, uh, what that big story of the world is all about. And then we're going to talk about some of the implications of that story. Now, there are some stories uh, that uh, start out with great opening lines, and maybe the most famous one is from A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, um, which goes, you all know it, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And then most of us only know that part, but it keeps going with some other great lines. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of of despair. Great opening section to that book. And then uh, maybe another famous one is uh, Herman Melville's intro to Moby Dick. Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. And then, of course, the greatest opening line to be written in the last century a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And all of those are great opening lines, right? They're great openers. They set the stage for the story that's going to follow, and they launch us into the world of the story. Um, and they, they kind of get you into that, uh, that setting and that place where the story takes place. But, of course, the Bible beats all of those hands down with the best opening line ever written. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that opening line, Genesis 1-1, sets the stage and lays the foundation and informs everything else that comes in the story. And since we're talking about the Bible here and not just a novel, uh, this line sets the stage and lays the foundation for everything in the actual world. It is the foundational principle that must be understood in order to make sense of everything that we experience. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. All that is was made by God. 
Elsewhere, the Bible puts it like this. In, in the Gospel of John, it says, Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. It all comes from God. A few verses later in Genesis, um, it says specifically about the creation of, of humans. It says, And God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and of the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We were created in God's image. Darwin was wrong. We are not simply more highly evolved animals. We were created by God, separate from the rest of creation, and were specially created in God's image. Nothing else in all creation is said to be in the image of God, only Adam and Eve and their descendants. And then in the next verse, we have what's often referred to as the creation mandate. Verse 28 of Genesis 1, it says, Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And Pastor Mike did a great job of uh, talking about this section in his sermon last week on work. And if you missed that uh, sermon on work, I really encourage you to go back and listen to it online. Really good, uh, good principles there on the biblical view of work and, uh, and how, how it relates to our spirituality. And then at the end of the first chapter of Genesis, we have another tremendously important theological statement um, that defines our Worldview, And here it is, verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. The Bible describes the condition of the world at this point as a perfect creation where people lived in perfect harmony with the natural world, with each other, and with God. And they had perfect peace and perfect shalom. And this was creation as God meant for it to be. Peace, harmony, meaningful work, and a close relationship between God and his people. And God created the universe and put us in it, and it was very good. The Hebrew word that the Bible uses to describe this ideal condition is uh, shalom. And it's usually translated into English as peace, but it means more than, than our English word peace. Sometimes when we say peace, we, we simply mean that there's a, a, an absence of conflict. But shalom means much more than that. Some of the English words that uh, overlap with their meaning with shalom include completeness, soundness, welfare, Peace, safety, health, prosperity, quiet, tranquility, and contentment. 
Shalom experienced is multidimensional, complete well-being, physical, psychological, social, and spiritual. It flows from all of one's relationships being put right with God, with oneself, and with others. So shalom is a very broad term. It is the ideal condition between people, God, and the rest of creation. And in the beginning, Adam and Eve had it. And we don't know exactly how long that lasted. Uh, Maybe it was just a few days. Maybe it was just a few years. Maybe it lasted many years. Uh, The Bible doesn't tell us, but we do know that it came to an end. Because there had been a rebellion in heaven. Some of the angels had chosen to reject God's rule over them. And the rebels were defeated and cast down to earth. And their leader, hating God, sought to spread his rebellion to humanity. He saw that if he could convince Adam and Eve to reject God's rule over them, that he could cause great harm to God's world. And so he persuaded Adam and Eve that they should reject God's instructions to them that they should doubt his honesty and his good intentions toward them, and that they should eat the forbidden fruit. And then the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden. The Bible calls this rejection of God's instructions sin. And sin has tremendous consequences. It resulted in the whole creation being put under a curse so that things are no longer as they were in the beginning. God told Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. So God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. See, we live in a fallen world. We no longer have perfect shalom. Our world is full of violence and poverty, crime and disease, injustice, disaster, and pain. And all of things, all those things and more are the result of sin. They are the result of mankind's rebellion against God and the pollution that sin has brought into the perfect world of God's shalom. Our relationships with each other are damaged. Our relationships with the creation is damaged. Our relationship with God is damaged. And our shalom is damaged. And we are doomed to death and destruction by our sin. But, but God loves us. 
He created us to bear his image, to reflect his glory, and to be in relationship with him. And he did not give up on us when we sinned. God immediately put into place a plan to undo the curse of sin, to make a way for us to find atonement for our sins, to eliminate the pain, the suffering, and the brokenness that comes from sin, and to restore shalom to the universe. God's plan is a long-term plan. It involves many generations of people. And it has a number of stages of development, and uh, it involves great events of history, kings and nations and wars and prophets. But it also involves individual people seeking to live out their lives as best they can in a fallen world. In the early days of God's plan, it was individuals like Job and Enoch and Melchizedek and Abraham and who were people of faith and who had right relationships with God. Their sins were forgiven, and yet they still lived in a fallen world. But their knowledge of God and their relationships with him led them to work against the effects of sin in the world around them. Here's how Job described his efforts to mitigate the suffering caused by sin around him. This is from Job chapter 29. Job says, I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing, justice as my robe and my turban. My eyes, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger and I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. And then a couple of chapters later, Job says this. Uh, he says, If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my mouth or from my youth, I reared them as a father would. From my birth, I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or the needy without garments and their hearts did not bless me for warming them with the fleece from my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from my shoulder. Let it be broken off at the joint. You see, throughout the Bible, God's people who are in right relationship with him, seek to fight against the curse of sin in the world around them. And they do it by doing the things that Job talks about here. They rescue the poor and the needy. They refuse to use their power to oppress. They seek justice on behalf of those who need an advocate. They use their resources to bless those who have physical needs. And when these people did these things, they were a part of God's plan to restore the world. They were bringing a little bit of shalom back into 
our fallen world. God's plan later became focused on a particular nation that he chose. And he said to Abraham, the founder of that nation, he said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All the people on earth will be blessed through this new nation that God is is creating through Abraham. And we know that the primary way that God has blessed the whole world through through Abraham was through one man who was descended from Abraham many centuries later. And that man was Jesus. And through Jesus, God is working to restore shalom to the world. When Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, the curse of sin and death was defeated. And the price for our rebellion was paid. And God made a way to remove sin and suffering from the world and to have an eternal world of perfect shalom. And you and I can be a part of that world. When we put our faith in Jesus as the one who has earned our salvation from sin, casting away any faith in anything else to save us, we are redeemed by God from sin and death and destined for eternity with God in paradise. But of course, we don't go there instantly, right? God's plan is for us to continue to live out our lives in this fallen world. But as we live as God's people, we are to be doing the kinds of things that Job did. We're to be working against the effects of sin in the world around us. And the biggest way we do that is by helping people to know God and his plan for salvation through sin, from sin through Jesus. Telling people about God and his love and how he can escape from the ultimate consequences of our sins through the mercy and grace of the gospel message is the key of God's uh, key calling of God's people in God's world. And the biggest motivation for us to be spreading the good news about Jesus is that we ourselves have been saved. Let me explain how this works. I myself and you, if you are a Christian, We're in a state of rebellion against God. The Bible says that we were all God's enemies. We were opposed to God and his rule in this world, and especially his rule over us. And yet, God chose to save us anyway. Despite the fact that Adam and Eve didn't deserve a plan of salvation, you'll notice that there is no plan of salvation for the angels who sinned. God was under no obligation to offer them a plan. He was under no obligation to offer us a plan either. But he did. God, because of his great love for us, sent his one and only son to die in our place despised, rejected, tortured, and killed because of our sin. And he did this 
while we were completely undeserving. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's why we call it the gospel of grace. That's why we talk about the mercy of God. And that's why this gospel must change all of our lives. It cannot simply be a religious belief that we add on to our life, right? It can't be simply one of the segments of your life. Um, we, we don't say, well, when it comes to sports, I really like football. And when it comes to food, I really like Mexican food. And when it comes to uh, politics, I'm a Republican. And when it comes to religion, I like Jesus. No, that's not the way it works. We, Jesus cannot be just our preference in a particular segment of our lives. God deserves so much more than just to be our religious preference. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created mankind to be in a relationship with him and to live in perfect shalom. We have chosen to rebel against him by breaking the peace and bringing a curse onto the whole world. And yet, he still loves us and sent Jesus to save us. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is not a fact to be taken lightly. Grace changes everything. It changes the way we see ourselves. We are the recipients of grace and mercy of God. And it changes the way we see other people. They are also God's image bearers who are in rebellion against him, but are loved by God and have the same potential for salvation that any of us have. And because we see them this way, we want to see them saved. We want to see the effects of sin eliminated from their lives. And so we preach the gospel and we seek to persuade others to turn to Jesus for salvation. Our biblical worldview, the way we see ourselves, God and the world around us compels us to spread the good news about Jesus' death on the cross. But our biblical worldview also causes us to have the kinds of concerns that Job talked about in the section we read a few minutes ago. We know that the world was meant to be a place full of peace and justice and plenty. That we are meant to have healthy relationships with our fellow man. We know that pain and suffering and violence and injustice are not just unfortunate, they're wrong. We know that people are made in the image of God. We know that when people suffer, it breaks God's heart. And we know that God wants us to do what we can do to help. 
So care for the poor and needy is in fact identified by Jesus as one of the key ways to, uh, to indicate that you are in fact saved people. And lack of care is key evidence that you do not know God. Jesus taught this most clearly in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, uh, he's telling the story of the coming judgment. And here's how he puts it in Matthew chapter 25. He says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, and I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus then goes on in this chapter to say the exact opposite is true for those who are condemned. They also had opportunity to serve Jesus and and help him by serving the poor and the needy, but they did not do it. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do it for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. You see, the the lack of concern to work against the effects of sin and, and, and the suffering that it causes is evidence that someone has not truly grasped the gospel of grace. For when we know that we are recipients of grace and what God has saved us from, And the undeserved nature of that salvation, it cannot but cause us to seek to please God by serving him, by serving the people that he has made. We will want to pray, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we will use the resources that God has given us, our talents, our time, and our treasure to work toward making it that way. We do that by spreading the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. We find ways to explain and persuade people of the way of salvation. And we do that by fighting against poverty and the effects of poverty. We feed the hungry. We give drink to the thirsty. We clothe the needy. We are welcoming to the stranger. And we do that by fighting against injustice. We care about those who are in prison We care about the social and political systems in our society and making sure that people are not being mistreated. We do that by promoting good marriages and good families. We seek to bring complete shalom back into the world. Will we succeed? Yes, we will succeed. And here's how, because our champion, our savior, Jesus, is going to come back. And when he returns, he will finalize his victory over sin and death. 
He will wipe every tear, heal every wound, and bring us perfect peace. But as we wait for his return, the gospel of grace causes us to seek to spread his grace widely in the world. So I want you to think a little bit this morning about what all this means for you. Where are you in this story? Are you one of the people who still needs to accept Christ's payment for your sins and put your faith in him to be saved from your sins and, and be destined for a perfect eternity? If you are and you you want that, God is offering it right now. And you can do business with God this morning and be saved from your sins and the effects of your sin in your life. And you can be on the track to eternity with God in heaven. But most of us, I think, here this morning are already on that track, and that's great. But what is then your part to play in fighting against the effects of sin in our world? The effects of sin are very broad. No one person can fight against everything. But what can you do? What should you do? What what opportunities, what is God calling you to do to fight against the effects of sin? of sin in our world today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son to give us grace, give us mercy, and save us from the consequences of our rebellion. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be inspired to do good in your world, to bring shalom back in little corners and little places where we can. May we be servants of your kingdom in your world today. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.